Welcome to the Wet Podcast, episode number 55. Thanks for tuning in to the Wet Podcast, writing education and technology. It's episode number 55. I am your host, Eric Marshall, as I am every week. Thanks for listening. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Shermer, uh, the founder and still editor-in-chief and publisher of Skeptic Magazine and author most recently of The Moral Arc, uh, in which he, he puts forth the claim that overall we are better off now than we ever have been, and it's, uh, it's kind of a refreshing take on the world and he credits that to uh, rationalism rational thought science uh, and things like that and we get into that quite a bit in the interview and uh, we, we ended up talking about um, a lot of different things including conspiracy theories uh, why people believe the things they believe uh, the history of skeptic magazine in fact uh, when i was listening back to this interview I was impressed with not only the breadth, but the depth of the things that we talk about. Uh, he has facts and uh, references at his fingertips, <laughs> it seemingly. And it's, it's just a, there's a wealth of information and insight in, in this interview. I've tried my best to put as many links as possible in the uh, show notes at thewetpodcast.com where you can find uh, links to Dr. Shermer's website, to Skeptic Magazine, and to uh, almost everything that we've talked about so far. At thewetpodcast.com, you can also find links to iTunes and Stitcher, where I would appreciate it if you would uh, leave a review if you like this, and links to uh, all the other episodes of the podcast so far. From there, you can get to the Facebook and Twitter pages for the show. It's basically just a one-stop shop, a little hub for the podcast, thewetpodcast.com. Dr. Shermer was uh, nice enough to take some time out on his birthday to talk to me, uh, and also uh, before going to teach his class, Skepticism 101, Thinking Like a Scientist, which sounds like such a cool class. I really want to really want to sit in on that. Uh, oh, well. Alas, he's in California. I'm in Michigan. Oh, well. But this conversation was, uh, was really quite eye-opening and insightful, uh, fun. I think you'll like it. You may notice that my voice is a little raspy and a little nasally a little bit uh, during the interview. I was at the tail end of a cold when we, uh, when we talked. Uh, I'm fine now. Thanks. But uh, it's really not that big a deal. I I just wanted to point it out in case you notice something different. Thanks again for listening to the web podcast. This is episode number 55. I'm Eric Marshall, and here is my interview with Dr. Michael Schirmer. I have with me today Dr. Michael Schirmer. And uh, thanks for thanks for being on the Wet Podcast. Oh, you're welcome. I've been reading Skeptic for a long time, off and on, and um, you know I know a lot of your work. But the way we got connected was you were uh, you were at the bar <laughs> after doing some cycling, is that right? And you ran into my friend Rob. Yes, yes, uh, correct. That's right. We went to dinner with some of my cycling friends there, and and uh, he recognized me and. And mentioned that he has a friend who has a podcast, and that'd be you. That'd be me. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm loyal to friends, new and old. So. <laughs> well, we all appreciate that, of course. I thought, you know, maybe we could start with uh, with your most recent book, The Moral Arc, uh, which I think, you know, it's been out for a little while now, right? I think yeah. 2015. Yeah. Uh, and maybe go through kind of the thesis, you know, uh, kind of what you're going for there and, and kind of use that as a springboard. Sure. That sounds good. Um, well, the thesis of the book uh, is that uh, there has been moral progress over the long run. That is, I'm talking about since the Enlightenment, maybe say the last 300 years or so. And that although it seems like things are bad and getting worse because we all watch the news every day and uh, the news is the media is tasked with keeping track of bad things that happen. 
just think that, you know, when Turkey had the little coup, uh, you know, every news network was there and every everybody with a with a um, video camera was, you know, filming it. And But, you know, all the years that Turkey didn't have a coup, you know, goes unnoticed. <laughs> <laughs> right, or countries right. that never have coups, you know, is not re- are not reported on the news. So, uh, or, you know, Ferguson or, or, you know, riots or, or, you know, that kind of thing, um, Syria, civil war. It's, you know, if, if you just watch the news, it seems like things are bad and getting worse. But, in fact, if you take the long term and, and follow the trend lines rather than the headlines, you'll find that, in fact, across the board, in almost any measure you want to have, things are better than they've ever been. There's never been a better time to be alive than now. If for nothing else, the medical and dentistry was, you know, terrible until just recently. <laughs> Right. So, you know, and so we really want to, um, you know, t- try to take the long view without getting complacent and saying, well, things are great and fine and we don't have to do anything. No, of course, there's still plenty to work on. But um, uh, and, and then the second part of my thesis is, well, what's the cause of that? And usually uh, religion gets the credit for moral progress, you know, Mother Teresa and, and, and the spread of Christianity and missionaries and you know, the gospel and this sort of thing. But, in fact, I document that it's mostly secular enlightenment values, the spread of rights and civil rights and civil liberties and concepts like equal treatment under the law and constitutional democracies and and free markets and travel and trade and, um, you know, printing, publishing, books, uh, the Internet. You know, these are all scientific, rational, technological changes that um, make people more more inclusive, more um, tolerant of people that are different from them, more likely to treat them with uh, equal respect and and equal rights and so on. Not that there aren't plenty of exceptions, there are, but uh, it's a little bit like tracking rates of poverty, you know, but in eight, but, you know, in the 1800s, late as the 1800s, even up to the early 1900s, the vast majority of the world was living under the equivalent of $2 a day today, what the UN defines as poverty, you know, and now in 2016, it's, uh, it's about 10%. So we've gone from about 85% to about 10%, maybe 15%, depending on how the measures are taken. And the projection is that by 2030, there'll be no more poverty by that definition in the in anywhere in the world. And, you know, it happens just slow enough, you don't really notice. But uh, if you pull back a little bit and take a, a longer view, you see this, you know, uh, amazing changes. So, you know, the abolition of slavery, the abolition of torture, the abolition of the death penalty everywhere except the United States. And even in the United States, you know, only 31 of the states still have the death penalty on the books and Really, only four ever practice it: Texas, Oklahoma, Ohio, and Florida. You know, Cal- California, where I'm at, we haven't executed anybody in ages. So, you know, those are the kinds of long-term progress that I I track in the book. Yeah, that's great. It's always nice to hear good news. You don't you don't hear enough of it as you were as you were saying. If you look, if you take the long view, right? So there's a few of us: myself, Stephen Pinker, Matt mm-hmm. Ridley. Uh, Robert Wright, um, you know, and, and and actually quite a few economists. Economists have been aware of this for a long time because they mm. they you, they track that those sorts of data, not moral progress so much as um, prosperity and and economic progress. You know, like you know the number of hours a year you have to work to get light in your house. You know, you know having <laughs> light in a house. You now that used to be a big deal. Yeah, uh, and you know now we just take it for granted, almost like. In the last decade, we just take it for granted that everyone has a smartphone, and uh, you know. But but and I I don't even have a landline anymore, and you know. So that's the kind of uh, progress that that we track. I love that that metric of uh, how many hours you have to work to have light in your house. That's that's very interesting because that's something that, like you said, we don't even think about, right? You just assume your lights are going to go on. If they're off for half an hour, right. you're, you get you get scared. <laughs> but this so. is kind of thing economists have tracked for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, like how, how much, what percent of your income is required to be used for clothing, food, mm-hmm. a roof over your head, lights, um, you know, a toilet. You know, just base the basics of life. <laughs> and 
it, it used to be, you know, all the way up until you know the twentieth century, you know that that, that large bulk, like ninety to ninety-five percent of your income, was spent just living. You know, and there was very little um, extra income left over. Uh, that you know, for vacations, for investment, savings, uh, you know, that that kind of thing. And now, you know, it's 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 very different. And uh, and so I, you know, I think it's good to remember that because we uh, we tend to focus more on the bad than the good. Um, yes. That is that is to say, I think there's an evolutionary argument to be made that it's it's in the benefit for, for survival reasons for animals, organisms, to pay attention to risky things more than good things. Uh, because, you know, if things get a little bit better, you don't really notice it so much. But if things go catastrophically wrong, that can take you out of the gene pool. Right, right. And so, and the way the economists say it, um, behavioral economists, is that uh, bad things hurt twice as much as good things feel good. <laughs> Or that, okay. is, that is, losses hurt twice as much as gains feel good. A famous quote from Jimmy Connors, the tennis player, is was, I hate to lose more than I like to win. <laughs> right. You know, sort of right. a negative motivation. Yeah, I know they've done studies on that, too, right? I remember uh, reading uh, Dan Ariely's book, and he talks about that, you know, given the a choice to avoid loss or or gain something, people will avoid the loss because they fear the pain, even if it means they have less in the end. You know what I mean? So they'll... they'll that, that's um, correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I kind of butchered that, but that's the basic no, understanding, that, that, right? That's right. If you want to get somebody to, to make a gamble, they have to feel like the potential payoff is twice as much as the potential loss, at mm. least emotionally. Right. right. And, um, you know, so yeah, the behavior economists, people like Dan Ariely, uh, Daniel Kahneman, Amos Tversky... Uh, Richard Thaler, Sass, uh, Cass Sunstein, and others, they've really opened the window into human nature that psychologists missed. And also psychologists who work in behavioral economics have opened the window for economists on human behavior. Because economists tend to uh, treat humans as rational calculators, like right. we're Mr. Spock, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. And we're, we're really not like that. You know, we make a lot of uh, apparently irrational decisions that you know, when you look at it from a different perspective, make perfect sense. Right, right. And things that can't be calculated or, uh, or counted on or, or whatever. You know, we don't go to the store and, and weigh all of our options. We say, oh, this one's at eye level <laughs> or whatever it might be, right? So there are all kinds of things going on that are not rational. So, yeah, so there's a kind of a reciprocal relationship between them, between the psychologists and the behavioral, uh, the economists and the behavioral econo- econo- e- yep. economists. Yep. Yeah, that's good. Um, so, and this comes. So, the moral arc comes from, you know. So, it's, it's the idea that you know things are better than they've ever been in a lot of ways, and uh, you credit that with with science, reasoning, enlightenment values, um, and things like that. And I think you make a pretty uh, persuasive case there. And I think you know this comes, I think, out of your you're best known for being a also the founder of Skeptic Magazine, right? And being a, a yep. skeptic, right? And uh, these things are definitely uh, compatible, I would say. And I'm really interested in knowing, um, just kind of as a little segue, how, how did you start, how and when did you start Skeptic? Well, we started the magazine in 1992. Um, so we're we're chugging along here, still in print. You know, there's a lot of magazines went out of business. Cause oh, yeah. yeah. It's tough business now. So we're... Uh, you know, we're also digital, uh, skeptic.com. You can go on there and, and subscribe digitally and read it on your iPad or your Kindle or whatever. Uh, but we sell a print magazine. It's in every uh, bookstore in North America. And the uh, Skeptic Society is the 501c3, you know, blanket organization, nonprofit science education. Our mission is to promote science and critical thinking and reason and rationality and secular values and um, so our main mission is um, to do the kind of thing we're doing now, that is disseminate information about science and skepticism, critical thinking and reason to the general public on, on any topic that might fall under our, our umbrella, you know, whether it's, you know, Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, aliens and UFOs or conspiracy theories about JFK and 9-11 and or, you know, alternative medicine, cancer quackery, autism and vaccination, 
uh, all the way out to like global warming, you know, climate deniers, creationists, you know, where there's, uh, so where there's some, some science link or connection to what we do uh, related to the public, who wants to know how it affects public policy, you know, that kind of thing. And you've been doing this since 1992. So that's uh, 20 years, right? Yeah, we're we're coming up here uh, on uh, 25 years. And uh, next year is our 25th anniversary. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, it is really cool. In in our time, in our quarter century, uh, there's been really a, a growth of secular, atheist, humanist, skeptical groups. Yes. That is all over the world, just spontaneously from the bottom up. There's no you know, government uh, programs or huge <laughs> scientific institutions founding this. It's just people like you and me right. uh, that just look out and go, hey, there's a need for you know whatever it is you do, whatever it is I do. Uh, there's a need for that. People want to know uh, what the explanations are for whatever, fire walking, for example. You know, how, right. how is it people do that? What's going on there? What's the science behind that? And it's a little bit, one of the analogies I used to make is that there was that popular TV show on Fox called uh, uh, the, uh, what was it, Unmasking the Magician or something like that. Magic Secrets Revealed. That was it. Okay. And, uh, you know, I think people, it's kind of fun to watch. It's kind of fun to know. Yeah. How do they walk through a wall? How do you stick your hand through a plate of glass? Yeah. How's that? (laughs) And it's kind of fun to know. I think people want to know uh, what the explanations for these things are. And. And in some cases, like, you know, should we teach creationism in public school science classes? Um, you know, do climate, is climate, are climate skeptics, uh, you know, do they have a viable position that, you know, should be taken up in Congress? You know, there the, the you know, the scientific information really matters. And uh, so what yeah. we're doing in that sense, I think, is really important because ultimately what drives behavior is, is ideas. And what drives bad behavior are bad ideas. Mm. Like, you know, like certain forms of religion, like Islamism, you know, and, and certain beliefs about that dr- leads people to do dangerous things. And so it's it's good to know what, what the truth is. Yeah, I do media studies. I teach uh, film and media studies at the University of Michigan-Dearborn. And one of the things we talk about at some point during the semester is media bias and like how the media works. And um a lot of people have, depending on what side you're on, if you're liberal or progressive, you think there's a conservative bias. If you're conservative, you think there's yes. a liberal bias. And, you know, we talk about a lot about how it's more a bias of convenience, <laughs> um, you know, whatever, whatever um, if it bleeds, it leads, right? Yeah. Things that yeah. are, you can narrativize very easily. Those are more of the biases. But one of them is, one of the things that we see a lot is false equivalencies. And when you mentioned creationism earlier, I kind of I thought about that because the idea of do we teach creationism in schools, well, the, the argument for that is, oh, well, it's a theory the same as the theory of evolution. And, and I think proponents of creationism really stick on that word theory, right? And I think that, you know, to me, that's a false equivalency because I don't think, I mean, is creationism a theory? Yeah, they think they have a theory, you know, intelligent right. design mm-hmm. theory or mm-hmm. scientific yeah. creationism, as it was called before that. Mm-hmm. But no, it's not a theory that any scientist would recognize. Right. They're using it in the more generic sense that the public uses it. You know, like when somebody goes, oh, I got a theory about the, why the Yankees aren't playing. <laughs> right. <laughs> I got a theory about JFK and 9-11, you know, whatever. Mm. You know, what they really mean is I got a wild-ass idea. <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought I've of a, this morning. I've got a at guess. Breakfast, you know? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. wild-ass guess, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That's really all it is. And, right. And in their case, they're using the language because they want to, um, you know, they want to embrace the values of science because we live in the age of science. But in fact... There's nothing, there's no science to it. Um, and we know because we, you know, we engage with them. and we, We've talked to them and said, you know, give us your best shot. What is it you got? Show us your evidence or whatever. And they have none. You know, they don't run experiments. They don't have journals. They don't have conferences. Um, you know, they don't have textbooks, classrooms, programs. You know, there, there's nothing to that. And there's nobody, there's no czar of science that says you can't, have a theory or you can't have a you're, this is America you can do whatever you want you, have, you can <laughs> right. publish all the books you want you can do whatever you want go ahead 
Mm-hmm. Same thing that I tell the Holocaust deniers, you know, you're free to do whatever you want. You're not in Germany or Australia, Austria, Canada, you know, the Holocaust denial is illegal, but in America, it's not, you're free to do it. So go for it. Right. Yeah. You know, I had a, <clears throat> I had an experience once years ago, this might've been, might've been in 2000. I think it might've been before 9-11. And uh, I don't know if you know, if you know the, the documentary, Errol Morris's documentary, uh, Mr. Death, about Fred yes, Leuchter. Yes, yes. Okay, so I used to show that to my film classes um, to talk about documentary and talking about how truth gets constructed in film and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, the film is about this guy who came to believe, well, we think he came to believe, but he came to... Um, to state <laughs> that the Holocaust never happened because in his view, the, he went to Dachau and, uh, and Auschwitz and, and took stones from what they thought were gas chambers. And he said, there's no way these could be gas chambers. They did tests and all that stuff. Right. So then he became this big, um, celebrity on the anti, the Holocaust deniers, um, kind of circuit. Right. So I showed this film and I, I, I kind of assume this is in Detroit and Detroit's a very diverse uh, place. And at Wayne state where I was teaching at the time, very, very diverse place. And, but I just kind of assume that everybody would assume that the Holocaust happened and, um, that, you know, the, the big question of the documentary is, is it, does this guy believe what he's saying or not? And how does he come to believe that? And, and things like that. And I had someone come up to me, he was, uh, of Middle Eastern descent. I don't know exactly where he's from. And he said, very innocently, you know, 18-year-old, 19-year-old uh, guy comes up innocently and says, I thought the uh, Holocaust was made up by the Jews, you know? It, it, <laughs> oh, yeah, God. but and that's what he was taught, you know, where, where he was, um, you know, in his home country. And, you know, it was very innocent, you know? It wasn't like, there was no... Um, he didn't want to argue with me. He was just confused. You know, this is, I think, the first time perhaps he had heard that that maybe... It wasn't that, right? It wasn't a, a, va- a vast conspiracy. It was very interesting. Yeah, yeah. So you see, you, that's a service. You provided a service to <laughs> right. Yeah, I try <laughs> alert people. Yeah, and that's the value. That's you know that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is to provide that kind of information for people who, who it's not that they're deniers or whatever themselves. They've just heard of it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I remember hearing about something like that. I wondered if there was something to that, and then. Oh, there's nothing to it. Okay. Right. Uh, you know, and so that that's the value. Right. Yeah, you hear that with climate change. Didn't they fake some emails a long time ago? That's that's you know, you hear that sometimes too. Right. And, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, among other, among other things. <laughs> um, right. Uh yeah, and that's that, that's a good service, right? To kind of test these claims, uh disprove the yeah. the ones that are uh, you know, without merit and and move on from there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, you know. For me, we have this election coming up, as as you know, um, and I'm I'm entering a new semester where I'm teaching media studies and and things like that. And inevitably, this is going to come up. We're going to talk about bias. We're going to talk about how we know what we know. We're going to talk about how how Donald Trump became the Republican nominee, <laughs> right? Which has a lot to do with sure. I think the media. Um, <clears throat> I think that you know that that's uh, the media you know are a big source of um, what what could be rational thought, but a lot of kind of skewed perceptions. Like you said at the very top when you were talking about, you know, all we hear is the bad news, right? All we hear is things that are going to entertain yeah. or be narrative, and I think that really tends to skew, you know, what we believe about the world and how we how we come right. to believe it. Is there a solution to that problem? What do we mm. do about that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an ongoing one yeah. because clearly just providing people the facts alone is usually not enough because uh, we, you have to get to the core, as you were saying mm-hmm. earlier, of why people believe mm-hmm. the same thing. Yeah. Usually there's some other reason. Like in the case of the creationists, it's almost always their religion. Right. In the case of climate deniers, it's their economic ideologies you know, the conservative, free market, mm-hmm. you know, type people, and they feel that the the liberal left is perpetrating this hoax of climate denial as a means of controlling the economy and finances and business and so on. Um, so it depends on what the, the sort of the deeper moral foundations are behind the person's beliefs. What is it that they feel is being challenged by your throwing out these facts? So the facts become secondary or tertiary 
to the deeper issues there. So you have to get at that. And then also there's this simple psychology, cognitive dissonance, that um, when people run up against facts that contradict their beliefs, they tend to double down on their beliefs. Um, and, you know, that was discovered by Leon Fessinger as a young psychologist when he went to visit that UFO cult on the, on the evening that the mothership was supposed to come and, and rescue them before the earth was destroyed. This was December 21st, 1954. And uh, you know, he thought it would be interesting to see what happens when the mothership doesn't show up and the world doesn't end. <laughs> and, and he ended up writing a book uh, called When Prophecy Fails. And, uh, and, the, and the concluding remark was, was the conclusion uh, remarks in the book was that not only did they not change their mind, you know, they, they doubled down. They went home and it's like, okay, well, maybe we miscalculated. It's tomorrow night or, or we're off by a year. It's next year, to December 21st. You know, they had, they had rationalizations for why the date was wrong. Uh, all, all, but, but almost no one said, you know what, this was a really dumb idea. We were wrong. Let, let's go back and start over. <laughs> right. Uh, no, you know, they rat- recruited more people to join, insisting, you know, it is going to happen. It is, you know. Or it was a test of our faith, and we passed, or we prayed for it, to, you know, and, and we were granted another year of life, and, you know, that kind of thing. And so and what goes on there is, you know, what is a huge body of research now in cognitive dissonance. The best book on this is Carol Tavers's book, Mistakes Are Made But Not By Me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's how we tend to justify and rationalize uh, our beliefs for why we're right and, we're, and we were not wrong. And uh, so the moment you tell somebody, well, you, you're wrong about climate change, you're wrong about evolution, you're wrong about whatever, uh, the, a wall goes up, you know, that, that you know, there's a barrier between you and them and you have to get that wall down somehow you know i find being respectful being open-minded you know embrace you know not embracing their ideas but showing that you're willing to listen Mm -hmm. and 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 repeat their arguments let me make sure i understand what you're saying you're saying and then repeat it And, and and so that so that they they will then respond, yeah, that's it. That's exactly. Or they go, no, 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 you know, you've completely misunderstood. This is what I'm saying. You know, and, and it shows that at least you're listening, you know, because if th- people think you're not even listening, then the, the wall gets even bigger. And, um, you know, then there's the problem of maybe people didn't even know. <laughs> uh, and that by engaging in them, it, it, it strengthened their arguments in the other direction. So there's, there's that problem. So there's, there's people that work on this, like psychologists that work on how to change people's minds, the area of persuasion. And, you know, it's like the madmen, you know, the advertising marketing type thing. Really, it's, you know, our product is ideas, you know, science. You know, how do we sell it? It's, 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 a, it's an age-old problem. <laughs> and uh, you know, and so, and it's not. There's not a simple solution, but there are tried and true methods, like I just reviewed there, that help. <laughs> All right. You have to try to pay attention to that. Yeah. So if you if you yell at them or tell them they're wrong, they're going to kind of back up a little, you know, and kind of entrench themselves. Right. They're going to they're going to dig in, uh, and, and like you said, double down. You know, I think that another problem we have is that now with uh, with the internet and with cable news, like people can kind of choose their news. You know, and you can. It's very easy to uh, put yourself into an echo chamber of of other people who have the same beliefs of you know news media. I, I put that in scare quotes. Media, news media um, that you know will tell you the the thing that you already believe over and over again. And I think that a lot of people, like I think that I, I try to encourage people to seek out different sides of the story. And you know, I try to have friends on, on social media and in life who have different political views, different, you know, views of lots of different things. And, you know, I try to consume different media, but a lot of people don't want to do that for that same reason, I think. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's really a an ongoing, never-ending project. <laughs> right. We've been at it. Yeah. We've been at it since the Enlightenment. Really, mm-hmm. you go back to people like David Hume and Immanuel Kant, and so, you know, we're up against huge forces of religion, politics, ideology. Um, you know, that have been entrenched for centuries, and uh, you know, and and so. <laughs> our work is our work is never done. Our work is never done. Right. I think to be a skeptic is you know is to is to look at things. 
uh, as rationally as possible to use evidence, uh, you know, to, to guide your, uh, your thoughts and, and things like that. But it's, I think the hardest thing to do is, is to be skeptical of your own beliefs, you know, it's right. It's always, it's right. always easy to see that that, that guy's crazy because he believes in what X, Y, or Z, right. But I'm not crazy. You know, uh, it's, it's hard to do and to, you know, admit that you, you might be wrong or that you, uh, you know, that maybe you need to change your, your viewpoint or something like that, you know, based on evidence. Yeah, right? yeah absolutely. I've, I've changed my mind on a number of, of issues over the years, but most of them I didn't have a big commitment to them in the first place. Uh, I see. And that makes it much easier. The more committed you are to the position, that is, the more there is to lose. Uh, like when I was religious, you know, I was a born-again Christian and all that. And, and, but I did that when I was in high school, and I left when I was in graduate school. You know, it's about seven years total. Uh, but I never, uh, it, it wasn't like my family were religious. I was raised in a non-religious home. And most of my friends were not religious. And the people I went to college with in graduate school, they weren't religious. So by the time I gave it up, no one really cared. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't like, you know, I'm 40 years old and married with kids and live in a small town and everybody at work goes to the same church and everybody we know goes to the same church. And, you know, if I don't go, it's a big problem. It isn't like that for me, for religion. So I'm, I'm more sympathetic to people um, who face that, you know, when they write, you know, they, they run into my work at Skeptic or one of my books, or whatever. And, um, it, and, you know, they write me and say, well, gosh, darn it, you know, uh, everybody I know goes to church. I, I'm really scared to come out as an atheist. It's easy in L.A., you know, we have every, <laughs> every, every wacky belief there is right. here, you know. So if you're, not a, if you're not a Christian, nobody cares. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, like as the publisher of Skeptic Magazine to say, you know, I, I think that aliens exist or UFOs are real or, or, or astrology works, you know, that would be quite shocking to my readership. I, that, I would be nervous to change my mind about that. There'd have to be some pretty compelling evidence that I would want other scientists to, you know, agree, yeah, there's something to this. Uh, you know, in other words, the more it's, the more there is at stake for you, the harder it is to change your mind. Yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, the more you you have psychologically invested in it, whether it's your reputation, your social position, uh, some aspect of your identity, things like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One one of the things that's always puzzled me um, is that you know here in the united states we have you know two major parties and uh you know I, I, we both know people who are staunchly republican or staunchly democrat or have been and i always I always it's always easy to look at the other side of course but you know i always thought to myself if you are uh let's say anti tax like you don't you don't like taxes you don't like the irs it doesn't logically follow that you would also be um, anti-choice, you know, anti, um, you know, anti-abortion or um, anti-gay or anything like that, right? But those things get kind of packaged in in the party's kind of platform and, and a lot of the beliefs, right? And a lot of people I know, you know, some people I know believe kind of all of those things simultaneously. And I always think, and, and the same on the liberal side as well. Like, there's no reason I think that those things should go together. Um, now you have, a, you have a section in the moral arc where you kind of address that. You have this great line where you say, um, um, if someone identifies with um, as liberal, you can say, I can, I can predict that you read the New York Times, you listen to progressive talk oh, radio, yeah, yeah. watch CNN, or pro-choice, anti-gun, adhere to a separation of church and state, etc., right? And you have another one for the, for the right. <laughs> but why, do you have an idea why they would go together? Is it, I, I have a theory about it, but... Um, I wonder what you think, and I'll see if I can bounce mine off you too. Uh, well, the idea is that the, the, those things are proxies for um, the, the the things like if I know where you stand on gun control, uh, I know where you probably stand on abortion, on immigration, you know, and a whole host of issues because they tend to correlate, uh, and, and because each of those is are examples of deeper moral foundation beliefs. Um, you know, like I, I believe in, you know, liberty and freedom, you know, in a libertarian sense that the government should not regulate what we do at, at all. 
uh, and that would be kind of the libertarian position. And so I can predict where you're going to stand on most things. If you tell me you're conservative and and that you you're you know, against gun control, you're you're probably not like the libertarian where you're also in favor of, of drug legalization. Right. Uh, but you should be if you're in, if you really believe in freedom and liberty and people should do what they want, then you should be in favor of the legalization of marijuana. Right. But but I know if you're conservative and you're and you're say pro-life, then then you're probably willing to intrude in people's private lives and want to regulate private life for the betterment of society, your perceived benefit of society. Therefore, you're going to be against uh, the legalization of marijuana. And if you're liberal, you know, and so forth. So those are that that's one reason. And then the the other one, like uh, the reading the newspapers, uh, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Uh, there, it's the uh, it's it's the confirmation bias. Right. We're going to pick out um, the sources of information that confirm what we are already believe and want to be true. Right. But what's your thing? Well, I th- yeah, I think that you, you nailed it with the libertarian thing because it is if you believe that the government should not you know tax you and all that stuff, like you said, you should believe in the legalization of marijuana, prostitution, any any of that stuff, right? And that's it's rare that people think those things. And I think it's exactly that, the confirmation bias, is that I think that people come to one or the other through one of the issues. So, for example, if you are religious and you're, you know, you're from the South and you're pro-life, well, the only other people around you that are pro-life are also Republicans. And they also believe in small government and, uh, you know, all the other things that we're talking about. Uh, So that in order for you to kind of maintain that pro-life stance, you kind of have to take the rest of it with it. You know, you don't have to, but you feel like you have to in order to fit in. And then all of a sudden those things become uh, deeply held beliefs as well. Uh, So my theory is that people come in on one issue, maybe two issues, and then the other issues kind of uh, kind of cling to it, right? Because in 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 this country, because of the two parties, it's they're these they're, they're packaged together, basically. Yeah, I think that's correct. Uh, this is um, similar to Jonathan Haidt's moral foundations theory that we we tend to be tribal, and and even if I haven't really thought through uh, certain issues like abortion or gun control. I don't know anything about it, but my team all tells me that this is what they believe. So I'm going with, I'm going with that because that's my team. And, uh, you know, they, they're all in favor of this one thing I'm really into. So they're my team and they want me to support them on those other things. Yeah. So, okay, I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. Not on a conscious level necessarily, but you know, but it's like, oh, well, right, these people right. believe this yeah. thing I believe, and they believe these other things, so these other things are probably correct as well. You know, and I think right. that uh, yeah. the the direction of, of, say, the Republican Party in the last 10, 20 years creates a problem for some people, right? Because they, they, it's shifting so much. Uh, and probably the, and the Democratic Party as well. Uh, I think that, that it's a different set of values almost um, now than it would have been made 20 years ago, I, w- I, would, I would think. So I think there's that's why you know with with Donald Trump I think there are a lot of people who are disavowing him. Right. So what 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 Republicans consider to be the parameters of their team beliefs, uh, you know, he doesn't fit that. So right. and that's what it just makes people nervous. I, I think if we were more like European countries that have multiple parties, right. multiple legitimate parties. Mm-hmm. Um, that really have power, and there's there's really going to be four or five people on the debate stage rather than two. Um, that would make a difference, and it wouldn't seem so weird. He w- uh, Trump wouldn't stand out because there would be three or four other people like him up there, you know, in different parties, believing different things, and it it feel like more of choice. We don't really have that much choice, right? Right. So you have to take the whole package. <laughs> more choice in the primaries, I guess. Right. That'd be the way. To- but once you get to the general election, it's pretty narrow. It's pretty narrow. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which I think maybe uh, accounts for such low voter turnout. Yeah, it just country. feels like, uh, well, why bother? I mean, I'm in California. It doesn't, you know, this doesn't really make any difference. <laughs> yeah, you vote. can vote for whoever you want. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, 
we're already seeing it develop, you know, Florida and Ohio, boy, that's it. You know, mm -hmm. if, if you live there, you have something to say. If you're not, if you're one of the other 48 states, bye-bye, Charlie. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes Michigan's in the mix, but not usually. That's right. But, yeah. yeah. Once in a while we get some attention, which I'm glad it's better when we don't, cause then you don't, you don't get all the, uh, all the ads, you know, on the, uh, on TV. Just think how many political ads there are in Florida and Ohio compared to what you're seeing in California. Right. Oh, I yeah, I know. It must be must be really intrusive. Uh, they they don't even bother. To right, ads right, here, I exactly. Think. Yeah, I have a friend who teaches a class uh, on conspiracy theories, actually. Oh, and I, I told him I was going to be talking to you, and he he asked me to. Uh, ask you about um about trump and the whole birther thing and and he's wondering if um if things like the birther conspiracies and and some of the other um alex jones type things that uh trump has said to undermine clinton like what does that do to our democracy and our political system is that um something that like will affect it in the long term do you think are people prone to believe these things um yeah conspiracy theories are a kind of a different category than some of the other things we investigate because there, because there are conspiracies that really do happen that, right. You know, Lincoln was assassinated by conspiracy. Uh, the, you know, first world war was triggered by the assassination of the Austrian, um, Archduke, uh, Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. Uh, that was a conspiracy, you know, the black hand, these uh, Serbian nationalists and, you know, Watergate was a conspiracy, you know, and, uh, you know, all the stuff that's come out in the last decade or so about the shenanigans the U.S. government was involved in in South American dictatorships backing this dictator versus that dictator and all that stuff that that uh, Christopher Hitchens exposed about Henry Kissinger. Uh, and, and then just recently, the NSA uh, exposés. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, WikiLeaks. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, that, those that that's in in a way those are conspiracies. I mean, we didn't know that they were doing these things, and right. it's not even clear that Congress approved a lot of that. Right. So you know, that's a conspiracy. So those those do happen. So we can't just automatically dismiss people's conspiracy theories as as crazy just because we don't know much about them or don't um, believe them. Right. Um, you know, and so. <laughs> but 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 the, the further out on the fringe you go, you know the the nine eleven truthers, the birthers, uh, you know it just becomes a waste of time, you know. So for example, the you know the pressure to release that uh, the last eighteen pages of the nine eleven report about the Saudis, you know, to me that's where the action was. Like, you know, not did Bush orchestrate nine eleven? Of course he didn't. But you know what what other shenanigans were going on? Uh, in, in American foreign policy in the Middle East, why are we sending money to Saudi Arabia besides mm -hmm. the obvious one they have oil? I mean, you know, their civil rights record is terrible. What you know? What are we doing? Uh, giving these people money, and why are they involved in? Why are we doing business with them, and so on? And you know, that to me is where the real conspiracy stuff is is going on that can corrupt. Well, that that, that can corrupt foreign policy and then in terms of local democracy the obvious ones money and in elections citizens yes. cited yep. um you know again the two-party thing the way it's set up inevitably it, it can really only ever be two parties you know if trump had want run for on a third party ticket he might have made headway like ross perot did yeah uh, but still even ross perot with all his money you know he he had as much money as trump probably uh, you know, and he did pretty well, but then, you know, just never, just kind of fizzled out. It's just so hard. Uh, you know, Gary, if Gary Johnson could get on stage. Right. He and actually his running mate, Wells, from Massachusetts, he is one of the most reasonable politicians of the whole bunch we've seen. Hmm. And, you know, Gary Johnson's pretty, pretty good, you know, gover twice governor of New Mexico. But he's a little bit of a pothead. <laughs> <laughs> right. And he's an ultramarathon athlete, which I like, but, you know, he... Spends a lot of time training. I think, I don't know. He uh, he doesn't seem terribly presidential, but it, but a lot is a lot of his ideas are pretty good actually. And uh, you know, but they have that rule: you can't be in the debate unless you get fifteen percent. And uh, you know, it's a catch twenty-two. Uh, you know, then people think, well, why should I? 
you know, even in a poll to say, I'm going to vote for this guy. If I don't even know much about him and I don't know much about him because I never see him and he doesn't get media coverage, you know, and that's a problem. I think I wish, yeah. I wish we had four, four good parties to choose from. Yeah, that would be, that would be nice. You know, it's, it's, you're, you're right that it's the catch 22 that they don't get any coverage because they don't get in debates. They don't get into the debates because they don't do, don't do well in polls. Then they don't do well in polls because they don't get the coverage. Right. Uh, right. Yep. And and someone like in California, like you said, you know, you could if someone calls you for a poll. I always tell people we should we should just have a um, kind of a sign a petition or something that says we're going to first of all lie to pollsters. We should always lie to political pollsters because I think that if we can put enough uh, variance into their into their <laughs> yes. polls, uh, then then maybe the news media will stop relying on them so much and actually report. You know, actually uh, report on the issues because every po- everything you see for the last year and a half has been oh Trump's up by 06 percent and Bernie Sanders is up or whatever it might be. Uh, so lie to pollsters right. <laughs> first right. of all, um, and then um, you know I think that you know it would be great if people said I'm voting for Gary Johnson even if they're not going to or Jill right. Stein even if they weren't going right. to just to see him on stage right. with these people you right. know just to. Like well, it doesn't hurt you to, you know, to lie to someone on the phone. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's our moral, uh, it's a moral. Andy, uh, you know, <laughs> <It's> Anderson <laughs> Cooper had a, a town hall meeting with Gary uh, Johnson and, and his uh, vice president, as he did Jill Stein. So I watched both of those. I thought, I thought the Gary Johnson uh, one was much better. I like him more than Jill Stein, but still, you know, it's mm-hmm. it's finally we get to see who the other people are. That's good. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They uh, they're both polling higher than they were this time last year because they were both the candidates last right, year that's right, right. Uh, yeah. for the Libertarian and Green parties. Yeah. So it's still not going to get to the fifteen percent, uh, but you know that's 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 how it goes. And it, in, in winner take all democracies, it always tends towards two parties. That's that's how it goes, you know, because. Um, there can only be one winner. You don't have like you said like a parliamentary thing where you get a certain proportion. So. You know, people don't want to vote for the third party. They want to vote for someone that they think might win. Right. right. Which is another catch-22. Yep. <laughs> so, that's there you it. go. Yep. And that's not even a conspiracy. <laughs> it's just... That's not a conspiracy. <laughs> that's right. It's, it's, it's in the open. <laughs> it's in the open, right. Yeah, but the conspiracy thing is interesting because, like you said, there are conspiracies. And, you know, when someone comes at me with, uh, like, the 9-11 truther thing or something, and I tell them that they're crazy or whatever, which I shouldn't do, as, as you've already said, um, the, the first thing a lot of them say is, well, do you believe everything the government tells you? Well, no. <laughs> but, right. you know, there are some things that are more credible than others. And, you know, and I think you – I've heard you say somewhere, maybe it was in the book, I'm not sure, uh, you know, the bigger the scope, right, the less likely – yeah, the bigger the scope, the more people that have to be involved uh, because people can't keep their mouth shut. And, mm-hmm. and and also the incompetency problem. The more people involved, the more likely somebody's going to screw it up. You know, I mean, the Lincoln assassination is a good example that, you know, they the intention was to decapitate the entire uh, administration. They're going to kill the president, the vice president, the secretary of state, secretary of war. And they got Lincoln, but you know somebody else chickened out. Somebody else was in the wrong place, and you know they'd screwed up this and that. And you know they caught him within a few days. Same thing with the um, uh, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. You know it was a screw up. Uh, uh, you know they were supposed to shoot him. Uh, no, they they threw a bomb at his car and they missed. And you know then the motorcade uh, whisked away and saved him, and everything was fine. The conspiracy was a. It was a failure, but then they doubled back on the parade route to go back. I can't remember where they were going. And, and one of the assassins was just sitting there on the curb, despondent. And, and, and here he comes in an open convertible. You know, it's like, oh, okay, thank you very much. Bam. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's often how it goes. You know? So one of the psychology aspect, psychological aspects of conspiracy is when you're on the outside, those of us that don't work in government or don't work for a – Fortune 500 company, we think the whole system is more well-oiled and polished and powerful than it really is. When you get on the inside, you see, you know, how the sausages are really made. (laughs) Right, right. And, uh, oh, these people are not very competent and so on. And the idea from the outside, well, yeah, they really could pull it off. And then you get Mm -hmm. the inside, you go, no, they probably can't pull it off. You know, and uh, it's like 
G. Gordon Liddy had, used to have a radio show in the 90s that I, I was on. And, you know, he asked me about conspiracy theories. And I said, well, you're, you're, the, you're the guy that should, I should be asking you. Oh. <laughs> you're the Watergate guy. And, right. Yeah, he told me his theory was that, um, you know, like, like the Ben Franklin thing, you know, three people could keep a secret if two of them are dead. <laughs> uh, you know, the problem is, is that uh, incompetency, uh, you know, just people screwed up, like Watergate. Oh. You know, I mean, here you have, you know, the Nixon administration, most powerful administration in the world. They couldn't even break into a hotel room uh, and, and, and pull it off. It's like a bad movie. Like yeah. A, <laughs> I think another thing that people do with conspiracy theories is they they look backwards at something, at, at who um, benefits from it. You know, I, for example, um, you know, George W. Bush used 9-11 to, to bring us into Iraq, um, and, and I think we all know there is no connection between Saddam Hussein right. and, and 9-11. Yep. It doesn't mean that he orchestrated it and caused it to happen so he could invade Iraq. It just means he saw a, an opportunity, right, uh, to sow fear and, and, and uh, you know, kind of bully Congress into, into letting him do that, right? Yep. So I think that's another thing people do. It's like, oh, well, this person benefited from him, so he must have done it, right? No, <laughs> not right. really, you know. Yeah, the hindsight bias is at work there. Yeah, yeah, after the fact, let's go back and see, you know, well, you know, you might be connecting the dots that aren't really there. Right, exactly. You know, it's like this interview, like it's like, I didn't plant my friend Rob at that bar because I knew you were going to be there. So he would tell sure. you that, you know, like, right. that's, that's crazy. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, you connect these dots. Like you said, the hindsight bias where where things look causal, you know, and, they're, and it looks so simple and, oh, well, he must have done this, this, and that. And like you said, there's incompetency. People can't keep their mouths shut. You know, these things are incredibly complex. So, you know, it's a matter of figuring out the difference between a, a, an actual conspiracy and, and a conspiracy theory that has no legs. Right. You know. Yep. So, yeah, it's good to keep the distinction between conspiracies and conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the question is, is what's the evidence for, you know, the particular theory that the, the conspiracy is itself true or not? That's what we, that's what we need to know. Yeah. So what's your, what's your next project? Uh, well, the next project I'm working on a TV, a TV show based on the book. That's not confirmed yet, but working on scripts, things like that. Um, so if that happens, that'll eat up about a year of my life probably. Um, but the book I'm, I'm finishing up now to turn in at the end of the year is called Heavens on Earth. And it's about the quest for immortality and perfectibility. Oh, cool. So immortality, anything from religion, uh, you know, all the different major religions, theories of heaven, the afterlife, and so forth. But the more interesting chapters are on uh, the transhumanists, the radical life extensionists, the extropians, the mind uploaders, the singularity people. Oh. You know, there's a whole cohort of people that when you go into that world, it's like religion. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, this is it. We're the special chosen generation that's going to make it. We're the first to ever live forever. We're going to upload our minds or be chronically frozen or do this and that. And when you really look at the science behind it, it's like, oh, man, these guys are dreaming. <laughs> you know, next to no chance that any of this stuff can work, um, or, or or that it would even do what they think it would do, like mind right. uploading. You know, I am convinced that even if it worked, which it, it, it can't, but 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 let's just pretend it would. You know, we scan your brain. We know where every synaptic connection is. We know the pattern of all the firings, every memory that you've ever stored in there. We 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 upload it into a computer. I don't think it would be you, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of what I mean by you is your first person uh, experience through your eyes perspective of the world. Like when you go to sleep tonight and you wake up tomorrow, it's still you. You still feel like, yeah, that's me. I, I, I'm the same person I was yesterday. Just had this little break in time mm-hmm. where you go under general anesthesia and you wake up. You're a little groggy, but then you get clear headed and, yep, it's still me. Yeah. Uh, but if, if you died and then they turned the computer on, I don't think you would wake up and go, Oh, here I am. <laughs> yeah. I think there's it would an, just be a copy. It would be like your twin. I think there's an issue of embodiment there, right? Cause you have your whole nervous system and your body. It would, yeah. I see what you mean. It would be, 
Well, it, it'd be different. The embodiment is a separate issue, which I think mm. is also a, a problem. Okay. Because because you're not just a brain in a jar. You, you, you know, your nervous system, your brain extends throughout your whole body. Um, so, but but th- their answer to that is, well, we would stimulate the parts of your brain to make you feel like you have. Ah, uh, okay, okay. Like the phantom, yeah. it'd be like phantom limb. You know, you, that they were right. stimulated, and it's. But but even so, I think it's still like your twin. It's just a copy of you. Right. I think right. the first person experiencer is not in there. You. It's somebody else. And how would we even know? We couldn't even ask them. You wouldn't even know. Yeah, because, mm-hmm. yeah, that's right. Exactly. If you ask the person in the computer, yeah, it's me. Right. Because <laughs> they has all your memories in your voice pattern or whatever. Uh, it wouldn't, yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah. And, but I that's... think religion has the same problem. I mean, you know, Christians, you know, they, they don't even. They're not even consistent, you know. But, but what what happens when you go to heaven? Are you is it is it your body resurrected like Jesus? Uh, mm. Some think yes, it's your body. Okay, what age? You know, you don't want to be resurrected at age ninety. <laughs> you know, you're, right? Okay, and so they figured out it's twenty nine. Twenty nine is like the perfect age or something like that. Uh, okay, okay. But, you know, and <laughs> Julia Sweeney has this funny bit in her monologue, Letting Go of God, about the Mormon boys that come to her apartment, or come to her house in L.A., and are telling her about how great the religion is. And, like, one of the aspects is, you know, when, when, when you go to heaven, you get, your, you get your body back, and it's perfect condition. And if, like, you're blind, you get to see again. If you're deaf, you get to hear again. And she said, well, I had uterine cancer, and I had to have my uterus taken out. Do I get my old uterus back? And they said, yes. And she goes, I don't want it back. And she said, what if you had a nose job and you liked it? Do I have to have my old nose back? You know, but I mean, there's a deeper point there. Like, well, yeah, what are we actually talking about? Well, so then some say, no, not a physical resurrection. It's a spiritual resurrection. Well, what does that mean? Is it your memories, your emotions, your temperament, your feelings, your thoughts? Uh, and if so, well, wh- where are they? What are they stored in? What's the medium? You know, and of course, no one has any answers. But right. other than you know, God works miracles and He can do whatever He wants. Yeah. Well, that's nice, but mysterious ways, all that. Yes. Yeah. 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 No. <laughs> wow. So, but now people like like Deepak Chopra and, and Buddhists, you know, they think it's all consciousness anyway. Mm-hmm. That, uh, material world is an illusion. It's all, you know, you're just returning to the big brain in the sky, the big quantum field that's out there, whatever. And so it's been a fun journey researching and reading what all these people think about this stuff. So are you you trying to... uh kind of debunk the possibilities of it or are you just, you well, know, just reporting just, reporting on it just re- reporting on it well, yeah pretty, yeah that sounds great i'm pretty skeptical of most of it i mean sure yeah uh, but but you know that that chapter on, on the singularity people and the extropians and the mind uploaders is uh afterlife afterlife for atheists you know because that's afterlife for atheists yeah, yeah right, right. Feels to you know because if you're a christian or Muslim or Jewish, you know, it's like, well, that's interesting, but I don't need that because I already got yeah. this other thing. Right, right. I, I'm going there anyway. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. That's a good, uh, but if you don't that's believe that, point. then what, you know, and you're facing death, well, what, you know, well, okay. So if there is no promise of the afterlife, then what? So that's my last chapter. You know, where do we find meaning, okay. meaning and purpose in life without the promise of, an, of another life to come? Right, and, you know, part yeah. of the answer is well, you make the most of it now. This is it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, nobody knows for sure what what happens mm-hmm. later, so you better make the most of it now. Yeah, that's what people. That's the big retort when you tell people you're an atheist or you don't or what you know, agnostic, whatever term you use is. Well, what happens after you die? And you know, my answer is I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Neither do you. Nobody knows, right? But that that's never satisfying for people. And it's it's you know, and like you said, it, it. I think that makes if you think of it really like this is it, this is the end. Well, yeah, you should, you better make the best of it now, right? Yeah. In various ways. Uh, so yeah, the the I don't know is never it's never satisfying to other people. But I, I think it's I think that's part of being skeptical too is is the ability and the willingness to say. I don't know, right? To a lot of things. Yeah, not just the afterlife, but to a lot of things. But we still have that striving, like you say, for life after death, to extend life and and all that. I look forward to that. That sounds like it's going to be a really great book. I I can't wait to read it. Thanks. 
That's great. Well, thanks for thanks for coming on. We're getting running a little late here. I want to let you go because you uh, you have your uh, skepticism one hundred and one class tonight. You yep. said, yep. yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> if I were in California, I would I would love to sit in on that class. <laughs> that sounds great. Uh, well, thanks, Eric. <laughs> yeah, and thanks for spending part of your birthday with me. Happy birthday. Yep. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, see, I'm, I intend to live forever, and so far, so good. <laughs> so far, so good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, thanks for talking, and uh, thanks, sir. talk to you later. Okay, bye. all right, bye-bye.